be in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8 tonight. Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. Now last week, Pastor Dave, um, really the week before because we had praise night, but he covered chapters 4 through 6, which had a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery, very similar to Revelation. If you remember, if you were here that night, there was flying scrolls, ladies in baskets carried by storks, all kind of images. Tonight, not so much of that, really almost none. Tonight will be more of a prophetic word of correction to the people, but it'll, it'll sort of challenge the people, but it also it will encourage them. And I think if we look at these verses as we read them and study them, it really should in, kind of challenge and encourage us, myself included, the same way it did the early Israelites. So chapter 7, verse 1, turn to me uh, with me and we'll, let's read together. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. Now, Kislev is a month from the Hebrew calendar, and that kind of varies depending on, you know, the seasons. It's not a fixed date like we would have, but on our calendar, it's somewhere every year between November and December. It's a, it's a fall month is a good way to think about it. And the reason in that verse it says King Darius, Israel had no king. King Darius was the king of the Medes and the Persians, so Zechariah is kind of under his authority. Let's read verse 2. It says, the people of Bethel had sent Sherezar and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord or ask the Lord by asking the priest of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets. And here's the question they ask. Should I, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So this group is asking God through the priests and the prophets this question. And they think it's a good question, but when I read it, it makes me wonder why really two things? Why are they fasting for so many years, and why in this certain fifth month? Well, we have to go back to some other scriptures, and it'll be on your screen. It'll be Second Kings, and I think we'll see it pretty clear. Here's why they're asking this question. It says, on the seventh day of the fifth month, there's our fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple, so he destroyed it, of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses. Every important building he burned down. So they were really fasting and mourning this destruction. That's why it's this certain month. That's why it's this certain time. So all during their exile in Babylon, the Jews had been kind of fasting and mourning four different feasts, or I mean fast, excuse me, four fasts. They were all on specific dates. They were all mourning, and they were all tied to the destruction of Jerusalem. And one of those is the one they're asking about, one of these four. And they're asking what they think is a great question because they're back home, they're back in Israel, so they're saying, should we still mourn? Should we still fast? Because I think in their minds they're thinking, we're making progress. But I think we talked about it the first week we started Zechariah. All they built was the foundation of the, the temple, and then they stopped. So the work had stopped. They're kind of at a standstill, and they're really not even close to doing the rest. They built some of the city, but the walls are still way down the road. So there's two problems there, though, with this question. These four fasts I just mentioned, none of the four were commanded by the Lord. So they would be what I would call a man-made idea or a man-made fast. And it's a more like a ritual. And because they had done them for these 70 years of exile, these fasts had almost taken on a life of their own. 
So they're more consumed with the ritual of doing it than the reason for doing it. And they had kind of become like a thing all in, in their own. Which brings up our first point if you're taking notes. Religious rituals, even communion, and I'll address that in a second, they can't make us righteous. A ritual won't make us righteous. Only a right relationship with God is how we're righteous. Now, I don't want to ever demean communion, but communion cannot make me or you holy by taking it. Jesus said to take communion to remember what he did. So we do it as a remembrance, but that communion won't get me to heaven. Neither will baptism or any other what I would almost call a good ritual. So it's a good ritual, but never mistake that it could save me or get me into heaven. It's a remembrance of Jesus' work on the cross. Very important, and I think we're going to do it this weekend because we always take communion the first week. This will be the first weekend if my math is right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we can talk later. Anyway, let's do verse 4. Verse 4. So before we move on, though, no ritual can over, overrule you know, God's obedience of his commands. And I think that's the theme we're going to see all night long. So let's read verse 4. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, to Zechariah, Ask all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in this fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me? And that's God. Was it really for me that you're fasting, that you're doing this? So God is asking the people a question through the prophet, but of course, he's God. He already knows the answer. He knew they weren't. He's almost pointed out by this question, hey, you're doing this for the wrong reasons, guys. You're mourning the good old days, and you're mourning how great you think it used to be. But don't we do that too sometime? You know, I was thinking about when I was young, the good old days. You could leave your doors unlocked. Gas was like 36 cents. Remember those days? And by the way, just to make sure I didn't imagine that, I went online and looked. Gas did not hit 50 cents until 1974. 74. So plenty of you in this room remember 50 cents, I think. Because I can remember I was not driving, of course. I was in the back seat, looked out the back window. I do remember gas in the 30s. Kind of crazy to think about when you go by the pump today. But we like to remember the good old days. And that's what these people were doing. But really, God's calling them out because they're not living for him. They're living for tradition and ritual. And look what he says in verse 6. He says in verse 6, When you were eating and drinking, were you not just eating and drinking and feasting for yourselves? In other words, it's not about me. God is saying, what about the rest of the year besides these four festivals, these four feasts? Or I mean, fast, excuse me, I'll keep saying feast. It's a fast, not a feast. That's a tongue twister. But the people were worried about themselves, not about the Lord. And so tonight we'll see the Lord challenge them, get back to the main thing, get back to me. Let's read verse 7. Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous? In other words, I sent prophets to tell you these things. You should have listened. And then if we look at verse 7, you know, I read out of the NIV. It says proclaimed. Other translations, and we're going to look at one out of the New King James. Other verses make it more clear what God is really asking them. Should you have not obeyed? Let's look at that in New King James. Should you have not obeyed, not just listened, not proclaimed, should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed to the prophets? When Jerusalem and all the cities were inhabited, prosperous, and the south and lowlands were inhabited. So he's tying it right here to obedience. It's obedience. So God is really trying to tell the people through that verse, 
Your fasting is really irrelevant to me. I really don't care that you're fasting because your hearts are far from me. He's really, if you want to put it in plain English, saying, you bunch of hypocrites, stop this you know, ritual and look at me and focus on me and really obey me. Obey me. That's what he's trying to tell them. But he's also reminding them when he says this verse, he says, if you would have listened, if you would have obeyed, there would be no need to fast. You wouldn't have to do these four things because you would still be prosperous and doing fine. It's because you didn't obey, is this, that's why you got into exile. Let's read verse 8. Here's what it says. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah, and this is what the Lord Almighty said. Now he's going to tell him what he wants and quit that fasting, but do this instead. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to each other. So God is really telling them, I want your action, not your ritual. Start acting like me. Start acting like a believer in me. Which brings up our second point if you're taking notes. You know, Christianity, it's really not a one-time event. It's not an external event especially. It's an internal change of heart. That's why he tells the people, true justice, love each other, show mercy, show compassion. Where's your internal new self? I don't care about your fasting and your ritual. But they're not getting it. Then he tells them in verse 10, he even takes it a step further, because apparently this is what they were doing. When you read this, you can almost backward engineer what they weren't doing, because verse 10 says, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. So they must have been doing that. The foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So God is really saying to them, and really to us tonight, behave well all year, not just on these four fasts. Show kindness, show mercy, show compassion. But the people weren't doing that. And really, if you track down kind of the root cause of why they were behaving badly, this bad behavior that's sort of mentioned in verse 10, it, it goes back to they had a bad relationship. If we don't have a right relationship with the Lord, that was our point earlier, we're going to have bad behavior. And the people had it. And really, I would make the case they became Babylonian. You know, they were living in Babylon all those 70 years. Babylon had gotten into their system, and they were acting Babylonian. Kind of like what we would call, Babylon's always a picture of the world system. They were acting like the world outside our doors out there. But there was a pattern of disobedience. Let's look in verse 11. Here's what it says. They refused to pay attention. That was their first problem. They stubbornly turned their backs and they covered their ears. So it's really a progression. So if the first thing they do, they, they start tuning God out. They don't actively do anything, but they kind of just quit listening is a good way to imagine it. You can almost imagine them starting. Any of us have children? We know what that looks like, don't we? When your kids tune you out as a parent? Trust me, I know exactly what that looks like. But the second thing, look, they actually turned away. They turned their backs to the Lord. So now they've ramped it up a notch. The third thing they do is they actually, they don't quit listening. They cover their ears. They actively disobey. It's a progression. But look what happens. Look what the fourth stage is. We'll see the fourth stage of disobedience in the 12th verse. Let's read 12. It says, they, so they did it. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law, the scriptures, or to the words the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So they quit listening to the scrolls being read. 
They quit listening to the prophets that were giving warnings. And look what the result is, the last part of 12. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. That's what got them into exile over and over. They had a pattern of disobedience. They would go into exile. They would behave a little better. Then they'd go into exile again. They kept messing up. But God keeps forgiving them, and we'll see that toward the end of tonight. But the people ended up at a place they never planned on being. They became hard-hearted. It really says they caused it on, on their own. But it was a gradual progression, and that's usually how it works. And here's what I mean by that. None of us, we don't wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to be hard-hearted today. I'm just going to quit obeying the Lord. It's usually when you talk to people that that's happened to. And at one point in my life, I walked away from God. It's usually a gradual progression. You don't just instantly say, I'm done. It's a gradual, and here's how it looks usually. One week you say, you know what? I'm really tired. I don't think I'll go to church. And so you skip. A couple of more weeks go by, maybe you're down to now once a month, you turn around, next thing you know, you're coming every six months, you look around again, now you're only here Christmas and Easter, kind of when it's convenient. It's a gradual progression. That's exactly what they did, that's exactly what we can do if we're not careful. Because Satan is very sneaky, he's smart, he knows if he tells you, hey Dave, just abandon God today, I'm not going to do that. But if he can deceive me by telling me I'm tired, it's too much trouble, it's raining, whatever the reason is, I'm not going to church, it's a gradual pattern of disobedience. And years ago, I heard this illustration. It's not mine. Let me make that real clear. But it, it's a good illustration to kind of drive home this point. Did you know that you can boil a frog alive? And that's really a true thing. I'm not making this up. But here's, here's the catch, though. If you get the water boiling and throw him in there, he'll jump out. So if you like frog legs, don't try to boil him all at once. You have to get him in there kind of, the water's cold, he's swimming sort of. You start it on low, you turn it to medium, turn it to high. Believe it or not, he'll just cook because he doesn't realize he's dying. Neither do we when we quit following the Lord gradually. We don't realize we're spiritually dying. It's a great analogy of what Satan does to us. He tricks us. He deceives us. He just slowly, slowly, slowly pulls us away. And it can be the most innocent of things. You know, maybe your thing you love to go fishing. Do you know Satan can use fishing to pull you away from the Lord? Nothing against fishing, by the way. Don't get mad at me and send me a bunch of emails. Long as you come to church when you're not fishing. In other words, you cannot trade one for the other. And unfortunately, when I give this kind of analogy, I've got a friend I know that he used to be here a lot, but over the years, he's always fishing on Sunday, and he really doesn't have time in his mind for the Lord because that's a great fishing day. But he didn't mean to do that. He didn't wake up and say, I'm going to just abandon the Lord and fish all the time. It was a slow, gradual process, just like that frog on the stove. So be careful. It brings up our next point if you're taking notes. Point number three. We can never stop moving forward. Because here's what Satan will tell us. Oh, it's okay. You're just going to kind of pause. But look at that point. You really don't stop. You, you go backwards. That's why we use the term sometimes backsliding. You ever heard backsliding? This is kind of the principle behind it. If you're not moving forward or growing, you're really going backwards. You're losing ground. 
And Satan just tells you, no, you're just kind of on pause. You're, you're at a standstill. It's okay. You still believe in God. You still got your Bible. But pretty soon, sports, things of the world become more and more important. Next thing you know, we're only here Christmas and Easter, and they're not too far from that, from not at all. We have to be careful that we always keep growing. It's a lifelong thing. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, think what he says. I have not yet attained it. And he always compared Christianity to a race. Well, if Paul has not obtained it, and he even said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that means we have to keep pushing for life forward. Because if Paul had to push forward, that means Dave does too, and all of you that I'm teaching tonight, and all of you watching online. So keep growing and what that means is stay in the Word, keep praying, keep seeking the Lord in many different ways, stay in church, stay in a small group, get in a class, come to Wednesday night like you're doing. So great job, everyone here. Great job, all of you watching online. Let's keep moving. Verse 13, look at the result of their disobedience. When I called, this is God speaking, when I called, they did not listen. So look what he's going to do. When they called... I would not listen. So God is now going to tune them out because of their disobedient hard hearts. That's a great reminder of a verse in Romans. And by the way, we're going to teach Romans in the fall. We're going to wait till school starts back, but don't miss our Romans series. We'll spend probably most of the rest of the year in Romans. And here's a little taste tonight, Romans chapter 2, verse 5. It's a great reminder of this same concept we're talking about. Think of the people in our story and apply this verse to them. Because of their stubbornness and their unrepentant hearts, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath in times when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So if we're hard-hearted, if we're rebellious and we're not doing what we should, we're, that verse says we're literally storing up wrath for the last day of judgment. You know, God does not want to be a life preserver. He is at salvation. In other words, he's, he loves us to call out and say, Lord, I'm desperate, help me. But he does not want me to keep doing that week in, week out, year after year. The only time I ever cry out to the Lord is when I'm desperate. And that's kind of, in a way, common to what some people see Christianity. It's a Christian life preserver. I don't really have time for God unless I'm desperate. I'm only going to pray or call out to him when I have a terrible need in my life. God wants a relationship with me, with you, with all of us. It's a friendship, an ongoing daily friendship, not a life preserver, save me every week relationship. And that's what these people were doing. But he will save you that way at salvation. I don't want to gloss that over either. So he is a life preserver. He's ready to save you just like that at salvation. And we'll give you a chance at the end of the night to do that. Let's keep reading verse 14. So now God's going to do something. He says, I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations. In other words, allowed them to go into exile where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate, no one traveled through it. And by the way, at one time it was a rich, fertile farmland. This is how they, they is the key word, the people, they made it. They made the pleasant land desolate. So God is reminding the people, because of your disobedience, you even ruined the land. And you caused this, not me. Let's skip to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what it says. Same kind of concept. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me, to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. And that can be a confusing term sometimes, jealousy in the Bible, because it gets our attention because a lot of times we think jealousy is a negative or really a bad thing. It can be, but in this case, it's not. There's a good jealousy, and of course, God being God would have the good kind, by the way. But really, God is jealous. He's like, it's his people. And the jealousy that we're talking about in Scripture, because that can be confusing to people that don't know what jealousy, you know, your God's a jealous God, why does it say that? You know, you might even have people that are unbelievers ask you that question. Well, God is jealous when his people worship other idols, because only God deserves our praise and worship. Only God. So if we share that, that's a great amen, by the way. So if we share that with any other thing, and it doesn't have to be a little stone statue, by the way. It could be a sports game, fishing, basketball, football, whatever it consumes my time. Money, possession, stuff can be an idol. It's not always a little carved image. Like You might be thinking, oh, I'm okay. I don't have an image at my house. But are you fishing every Sunday? Are you watching NFL football and skipping church? Football's okay, but wait till church is over, guys or girls. But the people were doing exactly this. They were putting other things before the Lord, and that's what made the Lord jealous for Zion. And a, another way to think of it, think of it as something that's rightfully yours. And sometimes I'll use a comparison, like if you're married in this room, and I'm married, by the way, if, if I spent all my time with other people other than my wife, and I'm talking male or female, not having an affair, I'm just talking spending all of my hours outside my house. I only came home and saw my wife like, say, 30 minutes a day. I was out visiting, being friendly, doing whatever, and I gave her no time. She would have the right to be jealous because that's her time. It belongs to her. I'm her spouse. It belongs to her. And vice versa. If she was doing the same thing, I would be rightfully jealous. This is the kind of jealous when you see in Scripture over and over. So never imagine God is the bad kind of jealous. He's jealous for an appropriate reason because the worship he's jealous about only belongs to him, and the people were giving it out inappropriate. That makes sense? It's righteous jealousy. The other kind, I'll just touch on that, the bad kind means I covet, I want something you have. I want your Mercedes. I want your 401k. I want your big house on the beach. If I'm jealous because you have that, or maybe I want something some other role a person has. Pastor Dave, he's here tonight. He's our head pastor of all of our campuses. If I wanted his job, that would be an inappropriate jelly. And by the way, I don't. Be careful what you ask for when you want those kind of things. He's up many sleepless nights, and he talks about that sometime on the weekend. But you, that's the wrong kind of jealousy. If I'm coveting somebody else's stuff or position or power or authority or whatever, that's not the jealousy we're seeing here in Scripture. God is jealous because the people are worshiping idols. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. This is what the Lord says. Now he's going to make him a promise. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. So now not just the people are coming back. Remember, there's only about 50,000 of them back right now. God is saying, I'm coming too. I'm going to join you. I'm going to be in Jerusalem. 
And because I'm coming back, I will make the city faithful and holy. That reminds us of a great verse out of Leviticus. It's Leviticus chapter 20. We can read it together on screen. It says, never make a mistake of why we're holy. Set yourselves apart to be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees by what? Putting them into practice. You could shorten that and say obey. Obey, and that's what makes you holy. For I am the Lord who makes you holy. Our obedience to him, he gives us his holiness. Nothing we can do can make us holy. It's only by his power given to us. But we are called to be set apart. We're called to be different. We're called to be more like him. And once again, that's a lifelong process of moving forward and growth. But here's our next point, if you're taking notes. It's God's presence in our life that makes us holy and faithful. It's not us. It's nothing we can do. It's not our labor, nothing we can earn. There's no ritual I can do. That doesn't make me holy. God makes me holy only by my obedience and my commitment, my faithfulness to him is how we're holy. The only way. So we're just nothing. We're just imperfect people, aren't we? We're not holy. But with, well, that's what's so beautiful about Christianity. God makes us holy. Then, then we're not. We get Jesus' holiness because of his work on the cross, even though we're imperfect, broken people. Let's keep reading verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, so now he's going to promise some blessings. Once again, men and women of ripe old age, a lot of old people is what he's nicely saying, will sit in the streets of Jerusalem each of them with a cane in their hand because of their age. That's how we know they're old people. Nothing wrong with old people, by the way. It's a blessing. He's saying, I will bless you with some elderly people in the city. Because think about who's there. There's only 50,000 people total. And really, the whole nation did not want to return. We talked a couple of weeks ago that a lot of them stayed in Babylon. They were happier to remain in the world than they were to come back and work hard because it was hard work. So these 50,000, there's not likely any old people. And that's why God is saying, I will bring old people back too. And he's even going to ramp it up a notch. And he's trying to tell them it's going to be a beautiful situation. It'll be safe. Look what verse 5 says. The city streets will also be filled with boys and girls playing there. So not just old people, very young people, kind of like Calvary Chapel. Young people, old people, come out back this weekend, you'll see both, old and young, playing together, kind of a picture of New Jerusalem. But interestingly enough, um, as I was studying and reading this, I'm not sure I buy this, by the way, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Some Bible commentators believe because of those two verses I read that old people with canes will be sitting in the street, also kids will be playing, it says, in the street. That really tells us in New Jerusalem there'll be no traffic, no cars, no horses. But if you remember in Revelation one night, I was giving you dimensions of New Jerusalem, and I made the case it stretched from Orlando to Minneapolis. And it was a square that big on every side, also that tall. So I sure hope we get to move around like Jesus did. Remember how Jesus just appeared through walls and he kind of wanted to be a place and he was? If you got no cars and no nothing and going to Minneapolis, that's going to be a long walk in New Jerusalem. 
But see, God is gracious. God loves to give his children gifts. Scripture is very clear on that. So I think we're going to move around like Jesus personally. If you want to walk, you can. I'm just going to imagine I'm in the new. I want to go to Minneapolis and I'll be there. That's how I see it. But once again, I'm joking. I'm not sure I buy that theory, but they take that as almost proof because everybody will be in the streets. Maybe the answer is we won't need to go anywhere. We'll be so happy and so joyful there's no need to go anywhere. You just sit where you are and have fun and worship the Lord all day long right where you're at. You don't even have to go across town. But it will be a lot of people, so maybe your old friend is up in the Minneapolis corner. So I like my version. I can imagine myself over there. Let's get off this rabbit trail and get verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to all of you, to this remnant of the people, but will it seem marvelous to me? In other words, I'm God. Is this going to be marvelous to me? Well, because the people really probably, they couldn't hardly believe what they were hearing. They're like, you know what? There's only 50,000 of us. How in the world are we going to finish this temple, finish this city, build these walls? And the walls are still 60 or 70 years away, by the way. They're talking about people in the streets, old and young. I just can't hardly imagine this. But God says, is it going to be marvelous to me? Well, let me ask you this. Does God have limits? No, I'll help you out. No, I heard somebody say it. But then why do we doubt? Why do we doubt that he does sometime when we need a miracle healing? We need a big financial windfall. We need a relationship fixed. We tend to put limits because we're imperfect people. Thank God for his grace that makes us holy because we are very imperfect. But two verses, I'm going to remind us of how great God is and how much he can do. Let's look on the screen together. Jeremiah 32, 17. O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Look what it says. Some things are too hard for you. Is that what it says? Nothing, nothing is too hard for you, God. Then look at Luke, Jesus' own words, kind of echoing that exact same thought. What is impossible to us, miracle healings, financial relationships, etc., is possible with the Lord. So never, 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 let our human minds limit the power of God in our lives. Because other scriptures say our faith is sometimes needed to activate the process. God could do anything at any given moment, but he wants me to believe, and all of you too, to believe he can do it. That's sometimes what he's waiting on. I'm the roadblock. It's not him ever. He's God. I could be the roadblock by my lack of faith, my lack, my unbelief, other verses call it. It's a hard thing. Sometimes we have to pray, Lord, I don't know how, I can't imagine, like these people, I can't imagine this, but Lord, I'm just trusting you to do it. I trust you to make these things happen that I can't imagine. That's how we should be. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and west. In other words, I'll bring them all back. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Now, this did come to pass, and if you've been at church very long in your life, you know that kind of ties to 1948 when Israel came back to, the people came back to Israel from all over the, the world. And it was tied to World War II is how we usually learn it, but it was really a miracle bigger than sometimes we know, because here's, here's two things I would bring up to kind of remind us. Israel retained their identity as the Jewish people. The Jews, they remembered their roots, all their traditions, all their stuff. 
for 20 centuries. 20 centuries they held on to their identity. Because other people groups have gone into exile, got evicted from their country, you know what usually happens? Before long, they just absorb where they are, they forget who they were. Israel retained it for 2,000 years, 20 centuries. And also, they were reestablished exactly to the square inch where they came from. Not a similar country, not a similar area, to the square inch where they left. That's a miracle. But really, it's a two-part miracle because we usually learn it. It's, you know, it happened in World War II. That's how I learned it. But as I was studying and kind of looking into this, there's a part we kind of leave out that's sort of interesting to me. This is a little bit of world history, but we have an extra minute. Bear with me. World War I. It really goes back to World War I because World War I, England or Britain, they conquered what we would call Palestine nowadays, Palestine, and they became the rulers of Palestine. And by the way, they defeated the Muslim nation that was called the Ottoman Turks. Remember that from high school, you know, history class? They defeated the Ottoman Turks who had ruled Palestine, let me get my number straight, from the 14th through the 20th century. So they ruled it all the way to World War I from the 14th century. Well, when we became, the Allies became victorious, England took over Palestine, it was theirs. So they had it up until World War II. And then because of all the atrocities that was revealed when you know, the, all the Holocaust happened and the, it showed pictures of people that were like gaunt and really terrible conditioned, the whole world was like, oh my gosh, that's so wrong, that's so terrible. Let's let them go back where they were from. So really World War II started the process. That's how Palestine got under control by England. World War II is when the worldwide sympathy came out, which kind of made me think of another verse that we know about Joseph. Let's look at that one on screen. It's Genesis chapter 50. It says, it's behind me, you can read it, I'm going to paraphrase it. It says, what you planned for evil, God planned for good. And in a strange way, I think that applies to the Jewish homeland. That Holocaust was a terrible thing, but it brought the nation home never to depart. And look at that verse. It says, there's survival of many people. They're still there today. We're taking a trip next year, by the way. You'll hear us start announcing it. I think we're going to announce it this weekend. Israel is on for next year, if you're interested. So start saving your money now. There's your free commercial a week early. So God can even use a terrible tragedy to do his will. Not that he would arrange a war to make that happen, but Evil men caused those wars, but God used those evil wars to get his people home, never to depart. And they're still there, like I said, today. Skip down to verse 11. God's going to kind of give a lot of grace on this tail end. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past. In other words, punish them. I will not deal with them like I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. He allowed them to be taken captive, but now he's making a promise, it's at an end. I'm not going to treat you that way. And he's going to really prosper them, bless them, really kind of help them in ways he hadn't in a long, long time. Let's skip down to verse 13 and keep reading. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, and there's verses that call them a curse, or a curse said, some of the verses say, so I will save you and you will be a blessing a blessing to those nations. Do not be afraid. But look what he says in the next part of this verse. Let your hands be strong. 
I'll translate that for us. What he's really saying, let your hands be strong, get back to work. You built this foundation of the temple, you've stopped it for too long, get busy. Get your hands, get your strong hands back moving. I'll bless you, I'll help you, but stop this pause that you're on. Start building like I kind of sent you here to do. Verse 14, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I determined to bring disaster on you for your disobedience, I'll add, and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, now I've determined to do good again in Jerusalem. Remember, he said, I will join you in Jerusalem and Judah. Then he closes with, do not be afraid. So he's saying, I'm going to bless you now. And really, that disaster that it's mentioned, this is all tied back to the, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. 13 and 14 both are kind of reflecting on the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant, by the way, is what we call a conditional covenant. It was, if you do this, I'll do that. Let's look at some verses out of Deuteronomy. I'll put them on the screen. And these are kind of condensed. I didn't list all the blessings, all the curses, but look what it says. Verse 2. All these blessings, and you can read Deuteronomy if you want to see them all. All these blessings will come on you. Look what it says, though. If, if you obey. There's our condition. Obey the Lord your God. Verse 15. If you do not obey... Look what happens. The Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses. So if you obey, blessings. If you disobey, curses. And I think we have one more verse, 45. There we go. They will pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed, all these other nations, until you're destroyed because why? You did not obey. You were rebellious. You didn't listen to the prophets. You did not keep the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant, is what the Lord is saying. And it says, you did not observe the commands and decrees he gave you. So that's the Mosaic Covenant in a nutshell. It's always conditional. If you do this, there's a blessing. If you don't do this, which really means disobey, you'll be cursed. And if you want to read the exact curses and blessings, it's all in Deuteronomy. Let's keep reading. Let's get back to verse 16 in our text. Verse 16. These are the things you are to do. In other words, this is how I want you to behave. Speak the truth to each other. That's a good thing for us, by the way. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Another great thing for us today. Do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. In other words, don't be a bunch of liars. I hate all of this. I hate if you're untruthful. I hate if you're a liar. I hate if you have unfair judgment. So you can kind of roll that all together and make it simple. And here's what I wrote. Love the truth. Speak the truth. And here's the most important one. Live the truth. We have to live our lives as truthful people. Our word is our bond. If we're always exaggerating, always lying, we're untruthful, people don't want to be our friends, do they? If we're like that, we've probably all had a friend in our lives like that, and you just can't really count on those kind of people. You might kind of allow them to be your casual friend, but they're not the one you're going to call when you're in trouble or need something because their word is not really valid. They're not truthful people at heart. God is telling us tonight through these verses, be people of truth. Let your word mean what it says. Stand on my word is what he's really saying. Because this is the real truth, is it not? This is the truth. We know it. Which brings up our 
fifth point if you're taking notes. God's truth is constant. It's not variable, in other words. It is definitely not adaptable to culture or public opinion. No matter what the world says, no matter what the feed on your phone tells you, no matter what these kind of crazy news shows tell you, this is the truth. Can't be changed, can't be adjusted. Every word, every jot, every tittle, which means everything, is true. And here at Calvary, we teach and believe every single word in here. We don't skip around. We teach hard stuff when we hit it. We usually don't teach topically and kind of cherry pick things. Like tonight, we're just going line by line, word for word, through God's word. It's all true. Because it's true to our lives and it helps us grow and to be more like Jesus. It's not changeable. So never let culture try to tell you differently. Culture's culture God's word is a rock. Let's keep reading verse 18. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now he's going to bring up, remember those four fasts I mentioned earlier that were kind of man-made rituals? Here's what God's going to say, though. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful, glad occasions. Because remember I told us earlier they were all mourning for something bad in Jerusalem. They were always celebrating this fast by Jerusalem's downfall. The, the city was burned. The temple was destroyed. The people were captured, et cetera, et cetera. There was always a tragedy they were fasting for. But God is saying now, those rituals you made up, I'm going to turn them into joyful occasions. I'm going to fix all those things you were mourning because in the new Jerusalem, it's going to be back. It's going to be better than it was. And in the end times, we get the best of all Jerusalem that's biggest from here to Minneapolis. But it connects back with that verse we read in the first part of tonight, verse 2. It's, it's their mindset almost. They were in the mindset of sadness, mourning, and missing those good old days. But God is telling them, I'm going to restore that, and you're going to be joyful on those same exact fasts. That same thought is kind of echoed by David in Psalms 30. Let's look at that one together on screen. Here's what it says. And you know this first because we sing it sometime. You've, this is David. Just imagine all the tragedy David had. But he says, you have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. Don't worry. Shane and Jimmy aren't going to dance next week. It's okay. But they will be joyful. And so will all of you and me. All of our worship team is joyful. But... If they dance, we'd be distracted, wouldn't we? And, and my wife would tell you, don't let Dave dance, whatever you do. It would be probably horrific if I did. If you don't believe me, ask Donna. But let's keep reading. Joyful dancing, you've taken my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. So God's just promising the people, what you saw as a horrible disaster is going to be now a joyful occasion. I'm going to fix it. Let's read what he says in verse 20. He's even going to make it even a better blessing in verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many people and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. In other words, come to Jerusalem. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat or seek, to seek the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself, I'm going. Let's all go to Jerusalem and seek the Lord. And these are many nations. In other words, these are non-Jews. Then it says in 22, many people and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. 
Now, once again, this was probably very hard for the hearers of Zechariah to even imagine. Because remember, there's only 50,000 of them back right now. So they're saying, are you kidding me? We can't even get our own people to come back here. They're all over in Babylon. How in the world are many nations and all these unbelievers going to come to Jerusalem? Well, really, it's a picture of end times. If you were here back in Revelation, remember how nations will come, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. This is a picture of what New Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth will look like. The entire world will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord. There's no other choice. Because if you don't want to do that, you're going to the lake of fire, a place you definitely don't want to be. It's option one, seek the Lord, worship the Lord. Option two, go away forever. Verse 23, we're almost done. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people, and don't get hung up on 10, it's just a number. 10 people from all languages and all nations, it's symbolic of all nations, will take firm hold of one Jew. More on that in a second. One Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. So once again, a picture of end times, but it's also a picture of Jesus. Think of this one Jew as being Jesus. It says many nations, these 10 people will grab the hem of one Jew. It's the hem of salvation. If you grab onto Jesus' robe, you're saved. It's a picture of the world being saved through one Jew, which the one Jew is Jesus. But really, another thing I want to bring up before we close, in that same verse it says, we hear God is with you. We hear God is with you. So the question is, how does that apply to me? How does that apply to all of us? Do people hear or imagine or know that God is with us? In other words, do they see Jesus in me, in you? That's a great self-examination. Only you know that answer, but your friends might know it. I'll help you out with that one. My friends might know it too. This is for me as well as this to you. Do people see Jesus in us? That's a great question to go home and think about tonight. Let's look at a verse in Matthew before we close. It kind of echoes the same thought. Look what it says. We know this verse. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. In other words, you can't hide your light of Jesus. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house, everyone in Brevard County, everyone in Florida, everyone nationwide. In the same way, let your, my, your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds that glorify the Father. In other words, so they would see Jesus in how I behave, how you behave, how we as Christians, Christ followers, behave. Because here's our final thought, and then we'll pray. And here's a kind of a sobering thought to me in some ways. We all probably have unbelievers in our jobs, our workplace, public's line. Some people's only interaction with Jesus will be you. And they might know that you're a Christian. They might know I'm one. And I'm not talking in these four walls. It's easy to be a Christian for an hour on Wednesday night. What do we look like at Publix? What do we look like when Walmart, there's 50 people in the checkout line and not a person around, it's all, you know, scan your own stuff. What do I look like when people cut me off in traffic out there? And I've got to 
I love Jesus bumper sticker and I'm acting ugly on the highway. You know? People will sometimes base their whole opinion of Christianity or really Jesus on our behavior. And that, that to me is a sobering challenge. You know, we have to be not on our A game in these walls because somebody might see me in church misbehaving. What do I look like after church? It's a challenge. And you know how we behave better? We ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you got to help me out here. I've got no patience. I'm in this long line. I'm frustrated. I'm ready to, like, strangle somebody. Please let me act like Jesus and not make a fool of myself and stumble somebody's walk that might come to church, but they just saw me throwing a hissy fit in line. Now they're not coming nowhere near the church because if that guy's a Christian, I don't want no part of that. That's the sobering reality. So let's just pray for God to help us behave better. But before I do that, maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're watching online, maybe you've walked away from Jesus. If that's you, I'll be down front tonight. You can call in the church office. We'd love to pray with you. If you're here in person, I would love to just pray a prayer with you to lead you back to the Lord. God is a God. He's a life preserver. Remember I told you it's salvation. Tonight, he can be your life preserver It's okay to call out in desperation every now and then, just not weekly or daily. If you need to come back to the Lord, come find me after church. But right now, let's just pray that we all, with the Holy Spirit's help, act like more like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, tonight, we love you. We've seen what it looks like when your people disobeyed, and Lord, we're no different. So, Father, help us obey your commands. Help us always put you first. And Holy Spirit, fill us with your power to act and behave and look to the world more like Jesus. And Lord, we're just imperfect people. I've said that over and over. So we need your help, Lord, to do this. Holy Spirit, you fill us with your power, your presence. Help us every waking moment to represent our Father and Jesus well, because we desperately need your help to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, amen. Zechariah chapter 7 and 8 tonight. Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. Now last week, Pastor Dave, um, really the week before because we had praise night, but he covered chapters 4 through 6, which had a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery, very similar to Revelation. If you remember, if you were here that night, there was flying scrolls, ladies in baskets carried by storks, all kind of images. Tonight, not so much of that, really almost none. Tonight will be more of a prophetic word of correction to the people, but it'll, it'll sort of challenge the people, but it also, it will encourage them. And I think if we look at these verses as we read them and study them, it really should in, kind of challenge and encourage us, myself included, the same way it did the early Israelites. So chapter 7, verse 1, turn to me uh, with me and we'll, let's read together. It says, In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. Now, Kislev is a month from the Hebrew calendar, and that kind of varies depending on, you know, the seasons. It's not a fixed date like we would have, but on our calendar, it's somewhere every year between November and December. It's a a fall month is a good way to think about it. And the reason in that verse it says King Darius, Israel had no king. King Darius was the king of the Medes and the Persians. So Zechariah is kind of under his authority. 
Let's read verse 2. It says, The people of Bethel had sent Sherezar and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord or ask the Lord by asking the priest of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets. And here's the question they ask. Should I, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So this group is asking God through the priests and the prophets this question. And they think it's a good question, but when I read it, it makes me wonder why really two things. Why are they fasting for so many years, and why in this certain fifth month? Well, we have to go back to some other scriptures, and it'll be on your screen. It'll be Second Kings, and I think we'll see it pretty clear. Here's why they're asking this question. It says, on the seventh day of the fifth month, there's our fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple, so he destroyed it, of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses. Every important building he burned down. So they were really fasting and mourning this destruction. That's why it's this certain month. That's why it's this certain time. So all during their exile in Babylon, the Jews had been kind of fasting and mourning four different feasts, or I mean fast, excuse me, four fasts. They were all on specific dates. They were all mourning, and they were all tied to the destruction of Jerusalem. And one of those is the one they're asking about, one of these four. And they're asking what they think is a great question because they're back home, they're back in Israel, so they're saying, should we still mourn? Should we still fast? Because I think in their minds they're thinking, we're making progress, but I think we talked about it the first week we started Zechariah. All they built was the foundation of the, the temple, and then they stopped. So the work had stopped. They're kind of at a standstill, and they're really not even close to doing the rest. They built some of the city, but the walls are still way down the road. So there's two problems there, though, with this question. These four fasts I just mentioned, none of the four were commanded by the Lord. So they would be what I would call a man-made idea or a man-made fast. And it's a more like a ritual. And because they had done them for these 70 years of exile, these fasts had almost taken on a life of their own. So they're more consumed with the ritual of doing it than the reason for doing it. And they had kind of become like a thing all in, in their own. Which brings up our first point if you're taking notes. Religious rituals, even communion, and I'll address that in a second, they can't make us righteous. A ritual won't make us righteous. Only a right relationship with God is how we're righteous. Now, I don't want to ever demean communion, but communion cannot make me or you holy by taking it. Jesus said to take communion to remember what he did. So we do it as a remembrance, but that communion won't get me to heaven. Neither will baptism or any other what I would almost call a good ritual. So it's a good ritual, but never mistake that it could save me or get me into heaven. It's a remembrance of Jesus' work on the cross. Very important, and I think we're going to do it this weekend because we always take communion the first week. This will be the first weekend if my math is right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we can talk later. Anyway, let's do verse 4. Verse 4. So before we move on, though, no ritual can over, overrule you know, God's obedience of his commands. And I think that's the theme we're going to see all night long. So let's read verse 4. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, to Zechariah, ask all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in this fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me? 
And that's God. Was it really for me that you're fasting, that you're doing this? So God is asking the people a question through the prophet, but of course, he's God. He already knows the answer. He knew they weren't. He's almost pointed out by this question, hey, you're doing this for the wrong reasons, guys. You're mourning the good old days, and you're mourning how great you think it used to be. But don't we do that too sometime? You know, I was thinking about when I was young, the good old days. You could leave your doors unlocked. Gas was like 36 cents. Remember those days? And by the way, just to make sure I didn't imagine that, I went online and looked. Gas did not hit 50 cents until 1974. 74. So plenty of you in this room remember 50 cents, I think. Because I can remember I was not driving, of course. I was in the back seat, looked out the back window. I do remember gas in the 30s. Kind of crazy to think about when you go by the pump today. But we like to remember the good old days. And that's what these people were doing. But really, God's calling them out because they're not living for him. They're living for tradition and ritual. And look what he says in verse 6. He says in verse 6, When you were eating and drinking, were you not just eating and drinking and feasting for yourselves? In other words, it's not about me. God is saying, what about the rest of the year besides these four festivals, these four feasts? Or I mean, fast, excuse me, I'll keep saying feast. It's a fast, not a feast. That's a tongue twister. But the people were worried about themselves, not about the Lord. And so tonight we'll see the Lord challenge them, get back to the main thing, get back to me. Let's read verse 7. Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous? In other words, I sent prophets to tell you these things. You should have listened. And then if we look at verse 7, you know, I read out of the NIV. It says proclaimed. Other translations, and we're going to look at one out of the New King James. Other verses make it more clear what God is really asking them. Should you have not obeyed? Let's look at that in New King James. Should you have not obeyed, not just listen, not proclaim, should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the prophets? When Jerusalem and all the cities were inhabited, prosperous, and the south and lowlands were inhabited. So he's tying it right here to obedience. It's obedience. So God is really trying to tell the people through that verse, your fasting is really irrelevant to me. I really don't care that you're fasting because your hearts are far from me. He's really, if you want to put it in plain English, saying, you bunch of hypocrites, stop this you know, ritual and look at me and focus on me and really obey me, obey me. That's what he's trying to tell them. But he's also reminding them when he says this verse, he says, if you would have listened, if you would have obeyed, there would be no need to fast. You wouldn't have to do these four things because you would still be prosperous and doing fine. It's because you didn't obey, is this, that's why you got into exile. Let's read verse 8. Here's what it says. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah, and this is what the Lord Almighty said. Now he's going to tell them what he wants, and quit that fasting, but do this instead. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to each other. So God is really telling them, I want your action, not your ritual. Start acting like me. Start acting like a believer in me. Which brings up our second point if you're taking notes. You know, Christianity, it's really not a one-time event. It's not an external event, especially. It's an internal change of heart. That's why he tells the people, true justice, love each other, show mercy, show compassion. Where's your internal new self? 
I don't care about your fasting and your ritual. But they're not getting it. Then he tells them in verse 10, he even takes it a step further, because apparently this is what they were doing. When you read this, you can almost backward engineer what they weren't doing, because verse 10 says, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. So they must have been doing that. The foreigner or the poor, do not plot evil against each other. So God is really saying to them, and really to us tonight, behave well all year, not just on these four fasts. Show kindness, show mercy, show compassion. But the people weren't doing that. And really, if you track down kind of the root cause of why they were behaving badly, this bad behavior that's sort of mentioned in verse 10, it it goes back to they had a bad relationship. If we don't have a right relationship with the Lord, that was our point earlier, we're going to have bad behavior. And the people had it. And really, I would make the case they became Babylonian. You know, they were living in Babylon all those 70 years. Babylon had gotten into their system, and they were acting Babylonian. Kind of like what we would call, Babylon's always a picture of the world system. They were acting like the world outside our doors out there. But there was a pattern of disobedience. Let's look in verse 11. Here's what it says. They refused to pay attention. That was their first problem. They stubbornly turned their backs, and they covered their ears. So it's really a progression. So the first thing they do, they they start tuning God out. They don't actively do anything, but they kind of just quit listening is a good way to imagine it. You can almost imagine them starting. Any of us have children? We know what that looks like, don't we, when your kids tune you out as a parent? Trust me, I know exactly what that looks like. But the second thing, look, they actually turned away. They turned their backs to the Lord. So now they've ramped it up a notch. The third thing they do is they actually, they don't quit listening. They cover their ears. They actively disobey. It's a progression. But look what happens. Look what the fourth stage is. We'll see the fourth stage of disobedience in the 12th verse. Let's read 12. It says, they, so they did it. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law, the scriptures, or to the words the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So they quit listening to the scrolls being read. They quit listening to the prophets that were giving warnings. And look what the result is, the last part of 12. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. That's what got them into exile over and over. They had a pattern of disobedience. They would go into exile. They would behave a little better. Then they'd go into exile again. They kept messing up. But God keeps forgiving them, and we'll see that toward the end of tonight. But the people ended up at a place they never planned on being. They became hard-hearted. It really says they caused it on, on their own. But it was a gradual progression, and that's usually how it works. And here's what I mean by that. None of us, we don't wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to be hard-hearted today. I'm just going to quit obeying the Lord. It's usually when you talk to people that that's happened to, and At one point in my life, I walked away from God. It's usually a gradual progression. You don't just instantly say, I'm done. It's a gradual, and here's how it looks, usually. One week, you say, you know what? I'm really tired. I don't think I'll go to church. And so you skip. A couple of more weeks go by. Maybe you're down to now once a month. You turn around. Next thing you know, you're coming every six months. You look around again. Now you're only here Christmas and Easter, kind of when it's convenient. It's a gradual progression. That's exactly what they did. That's exactly what we can do if we're not careful. Because Satan is very sneaky. 
He's smart. He knows if he tells you, hey, Dave, just abandon God today. I'm not going to do that. But if he can deceive me by telling me I'm tired, it's too much trouble, it's raining, whatever the reason is, I'm not going to church, it's a gradual pattern of disobedience. And years ago, I heard this illustration. It's not mine. Let me make that real clear. But it's a good illustration to kind of drive home this point. Did you know that you can boil a frog alive? And that's really a true thing. I'm not making this up. But here's, here's the catch, though. If you get the water boiling and throw him in there, he'll jump out. So if you like frog legs, don't try to boil him all at once. You have to get him in there kind of, the water's cold, he's swimming sort of. You start it on low, you turn it to medium, turn it to high. Believe it or not, he'll just cook. Because he doesn't realize he's dying. Neither do we when we quit following the Lord gradually. We don't realize we're spiritually dying. It's a great analogy of what Satan does to us. He tricks us. He deceives us. He just slowly, slowly, slowly pulls us away. And it can be the most innocent of things. You know, maybe your thing you love to go fishing. Do you know Satan can use fishing to pull you away from the Lord? Nothing against fishing, by the way. Don't get mad at me and send me a bunch of emails. Long as you come to church when you're not fishing. In other words, you cannot trade one for the other. And unfortunately, when I give this kind of analogy, I've got a friend I know that he used to be here a lot, but over the years, he's always fishing on Sunday, and he really doesn't have time in his mind for the Lord because that's a great fishing day. But he didn't mean to do that. He didn't wake up and say, I'm going to just abandon the Lord and fish all the time. It was a slow, gradual process, just like that frog on the stove. So be careful. It brings up our next point if you're taking notes. Point number three. We can never stop moving forward. Because here's what Satan will tell us. Oh, it's okay. You're just going to kind of pause. But look at that point. You really don't stop. You, you go backwards. That's why we use the term sometimes backsliding. You ever heard backsliding? This is kind of the principle behind it. If you're not moving forward or growing, you're really going backwards. You're losing ground. And Satan just tells you, no, you're just kind of on pause. You're, you're at a standstill. It's okay. You still believe in God. You still got your Bible. But pretty soon, sports, things of the world become more and more important. Next thing you know, we're only here Christmas and Easter, and they're not too far from that, from not at all. We have to be careful that we always keep growing. It's a lifelong thing. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, think what he says. I have not yet attained it. And he always compared Christianity to a race. Well, if Paul has not obtained it, and he even said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling... That means we have to keep pushing for life forward. Because if Paul had to push forward, that means Dave does too, and all of you that I'm teaching tonight, and all of you watching online. So keep growing. And what that means is stay in the Word. Keep praying. Keep seeking the Lord in many different ways. Stay in church. Stay in a small group. Get in a class. Come to Wednesday night like you're doing. So great job, everyone here. Great job, all of you watching online. Let's keep moving. Verse 13. Look at the result of their disobedience. When I called, this is God speaking, when I called, they did not listen. So look what he's going to do. When they called, I would not listen. So God is now going to tune them out because of their disobedient hard hearts. 
That's a great reminder of a verse in Romans. And by the way, we're going to teach Romans in the fall. We're going to wait till school starts back, but don't miss our Romans series. We'll spend probably most of the rest of the year in Romans. And here's a little taste tonight, Romans chapter 2, verse 5. It's a great reminder of this same concept we're talking about. Think of the people in our story and apply this verse to them. Because of their stubbornness and their unrepentant hearts, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath in times when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So if we're hard-hearted, if we're rebellious and we're not doing what we should, we're, that verse says we're literally storing up wrath for the last day of judgment. You know, God does not want to be a life preserver. He is at salvation. In other words, he's, he loves us to call out and say, Lord, I'm desperate, help me. But he does not want me to keep doing that week in, week out, year after year. The only time I ever cry out to the Lord is when I'm desperate. And that's kind of, in a way, common to what some people see Christianity. It's a Christian life preserver. I don't really have time for God unless I'm desperate. I'm only going to pray or call out to him when I have a terrible need in my life. God wants a relationship with me, with you, with all of us. It's a friendship, an ongoing daily friendship. Not a life preserver, save me every week relationship. And that's what these people were doing. But he will save you that way at salvation. I don't want to gloss that over either. So he is a life preserver. He's ready to save you just like that at salvation. And we'll give you a chance at the end of the night to do that. Let's keep reading verse 14. So now God's going to do something. He says, I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations. In other words, allowed them to go into exile where they were strangers the land they left behind them was so desolate, no one traveled through it. And by the way, at one time it was a rich, fertile farmland. This is how they, they is the key word, the people, they made it. They made the pleasant land desolate. So God is reminding the people, because of your disobedience, you even ruined the land. And you caused this, not me. Let's skip to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what it says. Same kind of concept. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me, to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. And that can be a confusing term sometimes, jealousy in the Bible, because it gets our attention because a lot of times we think jealousy is a negative or really a bad thing. It can be. But in this case, it's not. There's a good jealousy. And of course, God being God would have the good kind, by the way. But really, God is jealous. He's like, it's his people. And the jealousy that we're talking about in Scripture, because that can be confusing to people that don't know what jealousy, you know, you, your God's a jealous God. Why does it say that? You know, you might even have people that are unbelievers ask you that question. Well, God is jealous when his people worship other idols. Because only God deserves our praise and worship. Only God. So if we share that, that's a great amen, by the way. So if we share that with any other thing, and it doesn't have to be a little stone statue, by the way. It could be a sports game, fishing, basketball, football, whatever consumes my time. Money, possession, stuff can be an idol. It's not always a little carved image. Like You might be thinking, oh, I'm okay, I don't have an image at my house. But are you fishing every Sunday? Are you watching NFL football and skipping church? Football's okay, but wait till church is over, guys or girls. 
But the people were doing exactly this. They were putting other things before the Lord, and that's what made the Lord jealous for Zion. And another way to think of it, think of it as something that's rightfully yours. And sometimes I'll use a comparison, like if you're married in this room, and I'm married, by the way, if, if I spent all my time with other people other than my wife, and I'm talking male or female, not having an affair, I'm just talking spending all of my hours outside my house. I only came home and saw my wife like, say, 30 minutes a day. I was out visiting, being friendly, doing whatever, and I gave her no time. She would have the right to be jealous because that's her time. It belongs to her. I'm her spouse. It belongs to her. And vice versa. If she was doing the same thing, I would be rightfully jealous. This is the kind of jealous when you see in Scripture over and over. So never imagine God is the bad kind of jealous. He's jealous for an appropriate reason because the worship he's jealous about only belongs to him. And the people were giving it out inappropriate. That makes sense? It's righteous jealousy. The other kind, I'll just touch on that, the bad kind means I covet, I want something you have. I want your Mercedes. I want your 401K. I want your big house on the beach. If I'm jealous because you have that, or maybe I want something some other role a person has. Pastor Dave, he's here tonight. He's our head pastor of all of our campuses. If I wanted his job, that would be an inappropriate jelly. And by the way, I don't. Be careful what you ask for when you want those kind of things. He's up many sleepless nights, and he talks about that sometime on the weekend. But that's the wrong kind of jealousy. If I'm coveting somebody else's stuff or position or power or authority or whatever, that's not the jealousy we're seeing here in Scripture. God is jealous because the people are worshiping idols. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. This is what the Lord says. Now he's going to make him a promise. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. So now not just the people are coming back. Remember, there's only about 50,000 of them back right now. God is saying, I'm coming too. I'm going to join you. I'm going to be in Jerusalem. And because I'm coming back, I will make the city faithful and holy. That reminds us of a great verse out of Leviticus. It's Leviticus chapter 20. We can read it together on screen. It says, never make a mistake of why we're holy. Set yourselves apart to be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees by what? Putting them into practice. You could shorten that and say obey. Obey, and that's what makes you holy. For I am the Lord who makes you holy. Our obedience to him, he gives us his holiness. Nothing we can do can make us holy. It's only by his power given to us. But we are called to be set apart. We're called to be different. We're called to be more like him. And once again, that's a lifelong process of moving forward and growth. But here's our next point, if you're taking notes. It's God's presence in our life that makes us holy and faithful. It's not us. It's nothing we can do. It's not our labor, nothing we can earn. There's no ritual I can do. That doesn't make me holy. God makes me holy only by my obedience and my commitment, my faithfulness to him is how we're holy. The only way 
So we're just nothing. We're just imperfect people, aren't we? We're not holy. But with, well, that's what's so beautiful about Christianity. God makes us holy. Then, then we're not. We get Jesus' holiness because of his work on the cross, even though we're imperfect, broken people. Let's keep reading verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, so now he's going to promise some blessings. Once again, men and women of ripe old age, a lot of old people is what he's nicely saying, will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with a cane in their hand because of their age. That's how we know they're old people. Nothing wrong with old people, by the way. It's a blessing. He's saying, I will bless you with some elderly people in the city. Because think about who's there. There's only 50,000 people total. And really, the whole nation did not want to return. We talked a couple of weeks ago that a lot of them stayed in Babylon. They were happier to remain in the world than they were to come back and work hard because it was hard work. So these 50,000, there's not likely any old people. And that's why God is saying, I will bring old people back too. And he's even going to ramp it up a notch. And he's trying to tell them it's going to be a beautiful situation. It'll be safe. Look what verse 5 says. The city streets will also be filled with boys and girls playing there. So not just old people, very young people, kind of like Calvary Chapel. Young people, old people, come out back this weekend, you'll see both, old and young, playing together, kind of a picture of New Jerusalem. But interestingly enough, um, as I was studying and reading this, I'm not sure I buy this, by the way, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Some Bible commentators believe because of those two verses I read that old people with canes will be sitting in the street. Also, kids will be playing. It says, in the street. That really tells us in New Jerusalem there'll be no traffic, no cars, no horses. But if you remember in Revelation one night, I was giving you dimensions of New Jerusalem, and I made the case it stretched from Orlando to Minneapolis. And it was a square that big on every side, also that tall. So I sure hope we get to move around like Jesus did. Remember how Jesus just appeared through walls and he kind of wanted to be a place and he was? If you got no cars and no nothing and going to Minneapolis, that's going to be a long walk in New Jerusalem. But see, God is gracious. God loves to give his children gifts. Scripture is very clear on that. So I think we're going to move around like Jesus personally. If you want to walk, you can. I'm just going to imagine I'm in the new. I want to go to Minneapolis and I'll be there. That's how I see it. But once again, I'm joking. I'm not sure I buy that theory, but they take that as almost proof because everybody will be in the streets. Maybe the answer is we won't need to go anywhere. We'll be so happy and so joyful there's no need to go anywhere. You just sit where you are and have fun and worship the Lord all day long right where you're at. You don't even have to go across town. But it will be a lot of people, so maybe your old friend is up in the Minneapolis corner. So I like my version. I can imagine myself over there. Let's get off this rabbit trail and get verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to all of you, to this remnant of the people, but will it seem marvelous to me? In other words, I'm God. Is this going to be marvelous to me? Well, because the people really probably, they couldn't hardly believe what they were hearing. They're like, you know what? There's only 50,000 of us. How in the world are we going to finish this temple, finish this city, build these walls? And the walls are still 60 or 70 years away, by the way. They're talking about people in the streets, old and young. I just can't hardly imagine this. But God says, is it going to be marvelous to me? Well, let me ask you this. Does God have limits? 
No, I'll help you out. No, I heard somebody say it. But then why do we doubt? Why do we doubt that he does sometime when we need a miracle healing? We need a big financial windfall. We need a relationship fixed. We tend to put limits because we're imperfect people. Thank God for his grace that makes us holy because we are very imperfect. But two verses, I'm going to remind us of how great God is and how much he can do. Let's look on the screen together. Jeremiah 32, 17. O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Look what it says. Some things are too hard for you. Is that what it says? Nothing. Nothing is too hard for you, God. Then look at Luke, Jesus' own words, kind of echoing that exact same thought. What is impossible to us, miracle healings, financial relationships, etc., is possible with the Lord. So never, never, never let our human minds limit the power of God in our lives. Because other scriptures say our faith is sometimes needed to activate the process. God could do anything at any given moment, but he wants me to believe, and all of you too, to believe he can do it. That's sometimes what he's waiting on. I'm the roadblock. It's not him ever. He's God. I could be the roadblock by my lack of faith, my lack, my unbelief, other verses call it. It's a hard thing. Sometimes we have to praise, Lord, I don't know how, I can't ima- like these people, I can't imagine this, but Lord, I'm just trusting you to do it. I trust you to make these things happen that I can't imagine. That's how we should be. Verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and west. In other words, I'll bring them all back. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Now, this did come to pass, and if you've been at church very long in your life, you know that kind of ties to 1948 when Israel came back to, the people came back to Israel from all over the the world. And it was tied to World War II is how we usually learn it, but it was really a miracle bigger than sometimes we know, because here's, here's two things I would bring up to kind of remind us. Israel retained their identity as the Jewish people. The Jews, they remembered their roots, all their traditions, all their stuff for 20 centuries. 20 centuries they held on to their identity. Because other people groups have gone into exile, got evicted from their country. You know what usually happens? Before long, they just absorb where they are. They forget who they were. Israel retained it for 2,000 years, 20 centuries. And also, they were reestablished exactly to the square inch where they came from. Not a similar country, not a similar area to the square inch where they left. That's a miracle. But really, it's a two-part miracle because we usually learn it. It's, you know, it happened in World War II. That's how I learned it. But as I was studying and kind of looking into this, there's a part we kind of leave out that's sort of interesting to me. This is a little bit of world history, but we have an extra minute. Bear with me. World War I, it really goes back to World War I, because World War I, England or Britain, they conquered what we would call Palestine nowadays, Palestine, and they became the rulers of Palestine. And by the way, they defeated the Muslim nation that was called the Ottoman Turks. Remember that from high school, you know, history class? They defeated the Ottoman Turks who had ruled Palestine, let me get my number straight, from the 14th through the 20th century. So they ruled it all the way to World War I from the 14th century. Well, when we became, the Allies became victorious, 
England took over Palestine, it was theirs. So they had it up until World War II. And then because of all the atrocities that was revealed when you know, the, all the Holocaust happened and the, it showed pictures of people that were like gaunt and really terrible condition, the whole world was like, oh my gosh, that's so wrong, that's so terrible. Let's let them go back where they were from. So really World War II started the process. That's how Palestine got under control by England. World War II is when the worldwide sympathy came out which kind of made me think of another verse that we know about Joseph. Let's look at that one on screen. It's Genesis chapter 50. It says, it's behind me, you can read it. I'm going to paraphrase it. It says, what you plan for evil, God planned for good. And in a strange way, I think that applies to the Jewish homeland. That Holocaust was a terrible thing. But it brought the nation home never to depart. And look at that verse. It says, there's survival of many people. They're still there today. We're taking a trip next year, by the way. You'll hear us start announcing it. I think we're going to announce it this weekend. Israel is on for next year, if you're interested. So start saving your money now. There's your free commercial a week early. So God can even use a terrible tragedy to do his will. Not that he would arrange a war to make that happen, but evil men cause those wars but God used those evil wars to get his people home, never to depart. And they're still there, like I said, today. Skip down to verse 11. God's going to kind of give a lot of grace on this tail end. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past. In other words, punish them. I will not deal with them like I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. He allowed them to be taken captive, but now he's making a promise. It's at an end. I'm not going to treat you that way. And he's going to really prosper them, bless them, really kind of help them in ways he hadn't in a long, long time. Let's skip down to verse 13 and keep reading. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, and there's verses that call them a curse, or a curse said, some of the verses say, so I will save you and you will be a blessing a blessing to those nations. Do not be afraid. But look what he says in the next part of this verse. Let your hands be strong. I'll translate that for us. What he's really saying, let your hands be strong. Get back to work. You built this foundation of the temple. You've stopped it for too long. Get busy. Get your hands, get your strong hands back moving. I'll bless you. I'll help you. But stop this pause that you're on. Start building like I kind of sent you here to do. Verse 14, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I determined to bring disaster on you for your disobedience, I'll add, and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, now I have determined to do good again in Jerusalem. Remember, he said, I will join you in Jerusalem and Judah. Then he closes with, do not be afraid. So he's saying, I'm going to bless you now. And really... That disaster that it's mentioned, this is all tied back to the what we call the Mosaic Covenant. 13 and 14 both are kind of reflecting on the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant, by the way, is what we call a conditional covenant. It was, if you do this, I'll do that. Let's look at some verses out of Deuteronomy. I'll put them on the screen. And these are kind of condensed. I didn't list all the blessings, all the curses, but look what it says. Verse 2. All these blessings, and you can read Deuteronomy if you want to see them all. All these blessings will come on you. Look what it says, though. If, if you obey. There's our condition. 
Obey the Lord your God. Verse 15, if you do not obey, look what happens. The Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses. So if you obey, blessings. If you disobey, curses. And I think we have one more verse, 45. There we go. They will pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed, all these other nations, until you're destroyed because why? You did not obey. You were rebellious. You didn't listen to the prophets. You did not keep the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant is what the Lord is saying. And it says, you did not observe the commands and decrees he gave you. So that's the Mosaic Covenant in a nutshell. It's always conditional. If you do this, there's a blessing. If you don't do this, which really means disobey, you'll be cursed. And if you want to read the exact curses and blessings, it's all in Deuteronomy. Let's keep reading. Let's get back to verse 16 in our text. Verse 16. These are the things you are to do. In other words, this is how I want you to behave. Speak the truth to each other. That's a good thing for us, by the way. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Another great thing for us today. Do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. In other words, don't be a bunch of liars. I hate all of this. I hate if you're untruthful. I hate if you're a liar. I hate if you have unfair judgment. So you can kind of roll that all together and make it simple. And here's what I wrote. Love the truth. Speak the truth. And here's the most important one. Live the truth. We have to live our lives as truthful people. Our word is our bond. If we're always exaggerating, always lying, we're untruthful, people don't want to be our friends, do they? If we're like that. We've probably all had a friend in our lives like that, and you just can't really count on those kind of people. You might kind of allow them to be your casual friend, but they're not the one you're going to call when you're in trouble or need something. Because their word is not really valid. They're not truthful people at heart. God is telling us tonight through these verses, be people of truth. Let your word mean what it says. Stand on my word is what he's really saying. Because this is the real truth, is it not? This is the truth. We know it. Which brings up our fifth point for taking notes. God's truth is constant. It's not variable, in other words. It is definitely not adaptable to culture or public opinion. No matter what the world says, no matter what the feed on your phone tells you, no matter what these kind of crazy news shows tell you, this is the truth. Can't be changed, can't be adjusted. Every word, every jot, every tittle, which means everything, is true. And here at Calvary, we teach and believe every single word in here. We don't skip around. We teach hard stuff when we hit it. We usually don't teach topically and kind of cherry pick things like tonight. We're just going line by line, word for word, through God's word. It's all true because it's true to our lives and it helps us grow and to be more like Jesus. It's not changeable. So never let culture try to tell you differently. Culture's culture. God's word is a rock. Let's keep reading verse 18. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now he's going to bring up, remember those four fasts I mentioned earlier that were kind of man-made rituals? Here's what God's going to say, though. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful, glad occasions. 
Because remember I told us earlier they were all mourning for something bad in Jerusalem. They were always celebrating this fast by Jerusalem's downfall. The, the city was burned. The temple was destroyed. The people were captured, et cetera, et cetera. There was always a tragedy they were fasting for. But God is saying now, those rituals you made up, I'm going to turn them into joyful occasions. I'm going to fix all those things you were mourning because in the new Jerusalem, it's going to be back. It's going to be better than it was. And in the end times, we get the best of all Jerusalem that's biggest from here to Minneapolis. But it connects back with that verse we read in the first part of tonight, verse 2. It's, it's their mindset almost. They were in the mindset of sadness, mourning, and missing those good old days. But God is telling them, I'm going to restore that, and you're going to be joyful on those same exact fasts. That same thought is kind of echoed by David in Psalms 30. Let's look at that one together on screen. Here's what it says, and you know this first because we sing it sometime. You've, this is David. Just imagine all the tragedy David had, but he says, You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. Don't worry, Shane and Jimmy aren't going to dance next week. It's okay. But they will be joyful, and so will all of you and me, all of our worship team is joyful. But if they dance, we'd be distracted, wouldn't we? And, and my wife would tell you, don't let Dave dance whatever you do. It would be probably horrific if I did. If you don't believe me, ask Donna. But let's keep reading. Joyful dancing, you've taken my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. So God's just promising the people what you saw as a horrible disaster is going to be now a joyful occasion. I'm going to fix it. Let's read what he says in verse 20. He's even going to make it even a better blessing in verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many people and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. In other words, come to Jerusalem. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat or seek, to seek the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself, I'm going. Let's all go to Jerusalem and seek the Lord. And these are many nations. In other words, these are non-Jews. Then it says in 22, many people and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. Now, once again, this was probably very hard for the hearers of Zechariah to even imagine. Because remember, there's only 50,000 of them back right now. So they're saying, are you kidding me? We can't even get our own people to come back here. They're all over in Babylon. How in the world are many nations and all these unbelievers going to come to Jerusalem? Well, really, it's a picture of end times. If you were here back in Revelation, remember how nations will come, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord? This is a picture of what new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth will look like. The entire world will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord. There's no other choice, because if you don't want to do that, you're going to the lake of fire, a place you definitely don't want to be. It's option one, seek the Lord, worship the Lord. Option two, go away forever. Verse 23, we're almost done. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people, and don't get hung up on 10, it's just a number, 10 people from all languages and all nations, it's symbolic of all nations, will take firm hold of one Jew. More on that in a second. One Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. 
So once again, a picture of end times, but it's also a picture of Jesus. Think of this one Jew as being Jesus. It says, many nations, these ten people will grab the hem of one Jew. It's the hem of salvation. If you grab onto Jesus' robe, you're saved. It's a picture of the world being saved through one Jew, which the one Jew is Jesus. But really, another thing I want to bring up before we close, in that same verse it says, we hear God is with you. We hear God is with you. So the question is, how does that apply to me? How does that apply to all of us? Do people hear or imagine or know that God is with us? In other words, do they see Jesus in me, in you? That's a great self-examination. Only you know that answer, but your friends might know it. I'll help you out with that one. My friends might know it too. This is for me as well as this to you. Do people see Jesus in us? That's a great question to go home and think about tonight. Let's look at a verse in Matthew before we close. It kind of echoes the same thought. Look, look what it says. And we know this verse. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. In other words, you can't hide your light of Jesus. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house, everyone in Brevard County, everyone in Florida, everyone nationwide. In the same way, let your, my, your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds that glorify the Father. In other words, so they would see Jesus in how I behave, how you behave, how we as Christians, Christ followers, behave. Because here's our final thought, and then we'll pray. And here's a kind of a sobering thought to me in some ways. We all probably have unbelievers in our jobs, our workplace, public's line, some people's only interaction with Jesus will be you. And they might know that you're a Christian. They might know I'm one. And I'm not talking in these four walls. It's easy to be a Christian for an hour on Wednesday night. What do we look like at Publix? What do we look like when Walmart, there's 50 people in the checkout line and not a person around, it's all, you know, scan your own stuff. What do I look like when people cut me off in traffic out there? And I've got a I Love Jesus bumper sticker, and I'm acting ugly on the highway. You know? People will sometimes base their whole opinion of Christianity or really Jesus on our behavior. And that, that to me, is a sobering challenge, you know? We have to be not on our A game in these walls because somebody might see me in church misbehaving. What do I look like after church? It's a challenge. And you know how we behave better? We ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you got to help me out here. I've got no patience. I'm in this long line. I'm frustrated. I'm ready to, like, strangle somebody. Please let me act like Jesus and not make a fool of myself and stumble somebody's walk that might come to church, but they just saw me throwing a hissy fit in line. Now they're not coming nowhere near the church because if that guy's a Christian, I don't want no part of that. That's the sobering reality. So let's just pray for God to help us behave better. But before I do that, maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're watching online, maybe you've walked away from Jesus. If that's you, I'll be down front tonight. You can call in the church office. We'd love to pray with you. If you're here in person, I would love to just pray a prayer with you to lead you back to the Lord. God is a God. He's a life preserver. Remember I told you it's salvation. Tonight he can be your life preserver 
It's okay to call out in desperation every now and then, just not weekly or daily. If you need to come back to the Lord, come find me after church. But right now, let's just pray that we all, with the Holy Spirit's help, act like more like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, tonight, we love you. We've seen what it looks like when your people disobeyed, and Lord, we're no different. So, Father, help us obey your commands. Help us always put you first. And Holy Spirit, fill us with your power to act and behave and look to the world more like Jesus. And Lord, we're just imperfect people. I've said that over and over. So we need your help, Lord, to do this. Holy Spirit, you fill us with your power, your presence. Help us every waking moment to represent our Father and Jesus well, because we desperately need your help to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, amen. Amen.